Today, I'm in our author's garret to speak to our current writer-in-residence, Danny Kay. Danny is the part owner of Raven Bookstore in Lawrence, Kansas, and a poet with three collections to his name, Continental Breakfast, El Dorado Freddy's, and Flavortown. If that weren't enough, he's also the author of How to Resist Amazon and Why, an excoriating, enraging, but ultimately empowering takedown of one of the world's most powerful and damaging companies. And that is the subject of our conversation today. Danny, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. I'm so thrilled to be here. Maybe let's begin then by talking a little bit about the the Raven itself. Now, I've never been to the Raven. I've never been to, to Kansas. Um, but I had a little look on the website, and it looks like a really exciting place. So could you introduce it to our listeners who might not know about sure. it? Sure. Uh, Well, and thank you for the compliment. The Raven was founded in 1987 by two uh, friends as a mystery-only bookstore, a small, specialized place. Um, Lawrence, Kansas is a university town, um, roughly 100,000 residents. In in the late 80s and early 90s, there were probably dozens of specialized bookstores scattered about. Um, And then in 1997, a Borders Books and Music Superstore opened directly across the street. Um, and that was in the States in the late nineties, it was, they called it the, um, the bookstore wars, but Borders and Barnes and Noble, these two megastore chains. Um, and these are places that have a hundred thousand titles. They're 10,000 square feet or bigger. Um, and they sell books at a highly discounted rate. Um, which in this, the, the question of scale and discount will probably come up later in our conversation, but that was kind of round one. Um, was the chains versus the independents. And that borders, even the threat of that borders opening, closed a lot of the bookstores in yeah. Lawrence. And so the Raven um, stuck on, even though you could see the borders from the cash register at the Raven. Um, it, it hung tight with its devoted community and the smarts and activism of its owners, brought it into a general interest bookstore, um, and kind of slowly chugged along and, of course, outlasted the borders. The chain collapsed in 2011 and all yeah. the stores closed. And then I went, I moved to Lawrence in 2014 to get an MFA in poetry and started working at the Raven part-time and just fell in love with the book business. It's, it was modeled after an English library. It's, uh, it's a very comfortable space inside. Um, there's, there were two cats when I started working there. One of them has since retired, but it's, I just loved the plucky spirit in this kind of vein of activism about independent bookstores, as well as the great selection and the, um, the comfort and welcoming of the space. And so um, throughout the pandemic, um, we, we built up a pretty strong online audience and started shipping books. It took us six weeks after lockdown started to send a book to all 50 states. Um, and so that the demands of eventually reopening and maintaining our online audience meant we had to look for a new space. And so we renovated a much bigger storefront around the corner on the main street in in downtown Lawrence, which is called Massachusetts Street. And that was from August 2020 to August 2021. We were working on it. You all know how long it takes to renovate an old building. Oh, God. (laughs) Uh, And how many delays happen and all that. But we we did um, kind of come into our our beautiful new uh, space with the giant children's section with bright colors and kind of the stately English library feel up front. Um, And that's where we are today. Coming so, along. listening to that, our, you know, our listeners might think, well, hey, you know, this, you guys are doing pretty well. This is a good time for independent bookstores, you know, even though, you know, the, there's this big competitor, Amazon, which we're going to come on to talk about a lot. This is, a, this is an exciting time. So, 
Is that is that how it feels working working in a book? No, no, it okay. doesn't. It's, <laughs> it's always perilous, and I think that's true. I'm not sure. Well, I'm, I'm kind of here in France to learn about bookstores here and how it's going for you all, but mm. in the states, it's always <clears throat> hanging on by a thread. Uh-huh. Um, and part of it, moving into the new space, our rent increased by three hundred percent. Um, and there are still days, um, where it seems tight and the, a lot of the conditions of the U S market are set up. So businesses like ours can't thrive, whether that's low discounts from publishers, Mm -hmm. whether that's high commercial rents, whether that's, um, the cost of health insurance in the United uh-huh. States, which is astronomical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there are myriad challenges. And I think the fact that bookstores are finding a way to thrive in the United States is not evidence that things are easy for bookstores. Mm-hmm. It's evidence that booksellers are ingenious people uh-huh. who are very clever and they find ways to do great work, even in challenging conditions. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. I'm proud to be part of that lineage. I wouldn't be able to do it without my team mm-hmm. and I wouldn't be able to do it without the owners that came before me. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's a reason why we've found some success, it's because of them and certainly not because of market conditions in yeah, the United yeah, States. Yeah. And I think something it's also evidence of is a an appetite for something that the the bookstore provides in a way, which I think we're, we'll come on to talk about it later as well. But what I want to talk about now is that sort of on the ground experience of sort of working in and running um, the Raven. Because when I started at the bookstore seven years ago, I hadn't been a bookseller before, and learning about the book trade was kind of eye opening. Uh, in many ways, like seeing the kind of the back office stuff, learning about the discounts proposed by publishers and things like that, and also learning about the the challenges that an independent bookstore faces for for a myriad different reasons. So, could you just talk a little bit about how during your time at the Raven and perhaps talking with the people who worked there and ran it before you did, how the experience of running an independent bookstore has changed from back in the day when the Raven was founded through the bookstore wars and then with the invention of, of Amazon? Yeah, well, that's a, it's a great question. Um, my predecessor is an owner, um, Heidi, is my mentor and friend and my former boss. When she bought the store in 2008, there were no computers in this store. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is it probably parallels the Shakespeare Company yeah. story a little bit <laughs> with the like eccentric older owners who are holding it together by sheer force of will. But they would stick a little business card in each book and mm-hmm. pull it when it's sold and put it on a pile and then call the distributor the next morning and read the ISBNs to the huh. distributor. And that's how you put together your orders. There was no point of sale other than those note yeah, cards. Yeah. And I think we do some kind of quirky paper-based business survives. Our, our gift certificates are still on paper, mm-hmm. for, for instance. Um, so, I mean, the store, Heidi modernized the store, computerized it, bought a bookstore specialized point of sale system and started its website. Mm-hmm. So really bringing it in to the, um, the 21st century. And then, um, on, of course, in March 2020, um, we had to learn how to sell books online. Uh-huh well and uh-huh. fast and thank goodness we already had our website and we use a system that the uh, sponsored by the american booksellers association called indie commerce mm-hmm. which basically has it makes it easy for bookstores to have a ready set website it yeah. imports catalogs from um from wholesalers so we don't have to add every book to our website mm-hmm. which would have been um, impossible at the time for fifteen thousand books it would have taken us <laughs> a month to even be able to sell books online so um, learning how to run a hybrid operation. Mm-hmm. I think the, the the defining characteristic 
of post-pandemic book selling for me is um, figuring out how to create the bookstore experience in in the store, in the four walls, and also beyond it uh-huh. through things like <clears throat> newsletters, social media. We still we started delivering books in town via our cars mm-hmm. um, in March 2020, and we still do that, and right. we still have customers who order delivery in town. Mm. Um, virtual events, um, the 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 books we, and zines we publish mm-hmm. through the Raven, and so I think the Raven has gotten bigger than what's inside the four walls. Uh-huh. It's still centered on that, yeah. and I think the ideal way to experience the store is to come in and talk to us and, mm-hmm. and browse, but we have to think of other ways for people to engage with the Raven yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. beyond that. And we were forced to by the pandemic. And then now it's a question uh-huh. of what do we keep? I guess there's this feeling, isn't it, of like what we consider community has evolved over the last few years. So, you know, back in the, the uh, you know, the early 80s or whatever, a community would have been the people who lived around the Raven. And of course, they are still part of your community, yeah. but there's also people who know about you online, people who visit from out of town. Yeah. And it's a case of kind of keeping in touch with, with all of them, I think. Right. And yeah, that's a question I wasn't asking myself at the beginning uh-huh. of my bookselling career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so one, one, one thing you talk about in, um, in the book, How to Resist Amazon and Why, is the, um, the experience during the, the bookstore wars of how when, when there was a big borders that opened up, one thing that loyal customers of the Raven would do would they'd go and they'd browse like the almost endless stock in borders and then they'd come and they'd order the book from the Raven. And that seemed like a little kind of act of uh, important resistance to, to keep somewhere like, um, like the Raven going. And in a sense, people might say, well, you know, if we come on to talk about Amazon, why could the, not the same model work in that way? Why could people not like, sort of look at Amazon's sort of infinite catalogue and then come and, and order the, the book from the Raven and pick it up themselves? Is, is that something which people do or is there something about the Amazon model that... That prevents that. Yeah, I think it's the the I think the Amazon model is designed in a specific way to prevent that uh-huh. from happening. And so, um, at at Borders, when you find your book, there's an act of taking it off the shelf, mm-hmm. walking all the way up to the register, talking to a person, putting it in a bag, and leaving. Whereas on Amazon, they want to make that process as short and easy mm-hmm. as possible, and they have very talented software engineers making that happen. Yeah. So. You pull up the book and it's like it's it's 45 percent off and there's a button which you can click at the bottom, which will get it to your front door tomorrow. And that's I think that is so easy. It would make it difficult for people to resist that temptation. And that's exactly what Amazon wants. They call it a flywheel. They want to kind of capture you, um, keep you in their web of data collecting. Uh, and they have um, worked very, very hard to keep that flywheel spinning mm-hmm. and, and keep people buying and sending data. So, I mean, I, I think uh, it's possible. Um, sometimes people will come up to the register and show us a screen mm-hmm. from Amazon and ask us to order it. But I think there are probably a lot of people, even if they intended to do that, um, through no fault of their own, really, because they're in a kind of exploitative system that Amazon has designed, would just click buy instead mm-hmm. of getting in the car and driving to yeah, the Raven. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the crucial elements that you mentioned is that 45% discount. Because, I mean, so you give one example. You say, right now, as I write this in February 2019, bestseller Where the Crawdads Sing is on sale at Amazon for $9.59. If I were to order that book direct from the publisher for the Raven shelves, I'd have to write the publisher a check for $14.04 per copy. Now, I think that's something which the general book buyer 
doesn't really understand. And it's something that we hear quite a lot at Shakespeare and Company, and we'll get onto the specific French situation later. But is that idea of cut? Oh, but it's I can get it for half the price on Amazon. So for our listeners who haven't yet read your book, could you explain a little bit about the the way discounts work for booksellers generally, and how Amazon have kind of perverted that? Yeah, sure. I it's. I'm and on my Europe trip. I've just learned that it's it's different here. Um, that the United States actually has pretty favorable book discounts from publishers, but even then, I think they're still too low. So, roughly, I am paying fifty four percent of the in between fifty four and sixty percent of the cost of a book to a publisher um, to buy it and put it on my shelf, which means I get to keep forty to forty six percent of it. Uh, generally. To be clear, this is of the the cover the price. cover price. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, that's from that 40 percent. I have to do everything. I have to pay rent. I have to pay my employees. Whatever profit I get is coming from that. Um, and so because of all that important stuff is in that 40 percent, which is much lower than a regular retail mm-hmm. margin, almost all retail goods have better margins than than books. Um, discounting is really scary to mm-hmm. me because a discount on a book means less money to pay my talented booksellers at the Raven, which is a scary thought. Um, so Amazon, on the other hand, um, likely, maybe, possibly gets better discounts from publishers just because their scale is so big that they right. can kind of bully people around. People don't want to lose their Amazon contract, so Amazon typically gets whatever they want. And it's possible for them to lose money on books. Mm-hmm. To do um, steep discounts on retail goods is a really easy way to snag people into that flywheel where Amazon can sell them products that make more money, Mm -hmm. like a Prime subscription, um, like an item on Marketplace, which has a 50% fee that Amazon gets to keep off Mm -hmm. that sale. And so if they lose a little bit of money on retail goods, they make much more money on the data and other purchases that people will make further down Mm -hmm. the line. And so a a bookstore is selling really only books. Uh 15% of what we sell is cards and and merchandise and and stationery, but really a huge majority of what we sell is books, which is not true of Mm -hmm. Amazon. Amazon has a lot of extremely profitable things uh, that they can offset the discounts on Mm -hmm. retail goods. And to me, looking at that, that's fundamentally unfair. That's not a free market. Um, When my competitor is losing money on retail goods and making it up in things that I can't compete with them Mm -hmm. on. Yeah, and I suppose that's one thing that... um the, your book really puts in puts in your mind is to sort of ask, ask why something is so cheap yeah. on Amazon, right. and it's not sort of you know because I, I think you know as a general consumer your first thought is you know the cheaper the better and that you know that that yeah. is a free market, but one thing that becomes kind of depressingly clear <laughs> as we read how to resist Amazon and why is that it's not a free market in fact yeah. like sort of they or at least it's not a rules based free market mm-hmm. in uh, in the way that you might hope, right. Uh... Yeah, I mean, for one thing, um, another reason a $9 hardcover is a travesty is because the $27.99, the regular price, is probably too low as well. And it's not a popular thing to argue for more expensive books, but I... I firmly believe that downward pressure on the price of a book is bad for people who make books and work in books. If if the company that controls more than half of the book market, more than 75% of online sales of books, is exerting downward pressure on the price of books for years, people are going to have a lower perception of what a book should be worth. And that means less money for authors and people who sell books. And that means... Um, 
I just think about the people who decide not to write a book because there's no money in it. It's going to have a kind of a dampening effect on, on who can write. And that turns into a really scary problem. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not a level playing field. This is, and it's also, I want to, uh, argue that this is not just Amazon. I mean, there's a corporate consolidation problem in the United States. And, um, some of this applies to publishing, healthcare, certainly, um, there was a baby formula shortage in the United States that was caused because, oh my gosh, two thirds of all baby food is made by one company. And when they're, one of their factories shuts down, all of a sudden shelves are empty. And so it's just how the U.S. marketplace works um, because for decades, it's been this really hands-off approach to corporate consolidation. Companies get so big that they really take over marketplaces and it makes it impossible for anybody else to compete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny because looking from a sort of uh, European perspective, the kind of the myth of the America uh, of America is this idea of like the small business yeah. becoming the big business and doing well and, 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 and this sense of kind of I get it. There's an anti-monopolistic practice, and yet when you look at the the reality of it, particularly I think in, since the sort of the the internet boom, the the market seems to be dominated more and more by monopolistic actors. Well, it's because the policy doesn't match the myth, mm-hmm. um, and th- there's not um, well thought out, firmly enforced uh, policy that allows that dream to happen. And so if it happens, if a small business finds success, again, it's because of scrappiness and ingenuity, and it's not because the system is designed for them to succeed. Yeah. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play devil's advocate briefly, and it's going to hurt me to, to do so. So, so please, don't, <laughs> please, please don't condemn me for, for these words. But let's say like supporters of Amazon might say, well, look, okay, it was a great idea that worked really well, that provides a service that people like and that people use and that people seem happy to pay for and that offers goods at prices cheaper than people can get them elsewhere. Um, If that puts old-fashioned, let's say, legacy ways of doing business, you know, if that bankruptcy stores, you know, what's the problem? That's life, that's the free market and, you know, people who run bookstores or people who run other kinds of stores that are being put out of business by Amazon and other companies, you know, that's just, that's progress, you know, sort of get used to it. It's always been like that and it always will be like that. Yeah, I think this is when... I want to wash my mouth out. Okay. (laughs) It's a a great question. Um, My first thought is um, I I had a person email me and was like, um, Amazon is progress. If they're going to put your bookstore out of, this is like the blacksmith who makes horseshoes complaining about the invention of the automobile. Right. <laughs> and my response to that was, even if that's true, and even if the automobile was did represent progress, and I'm not even sure that's the proper argument to make, what do you expect the blacksmith to do? Mm-hmm. Just sit back and accept his fate? The blacksmith believes in what he does. The blacksmith offers a service to his community. The blacksmith has a livelihood with this art. I don't expect the blacksmith to sit down and take his fate quietly, and I'm certainly not. So even if bookstores are a relic of the past, which, I, again, I do not believe, but even if they are, I'm not going to go down quietly. Um, but second, I think a, a problem with big tech monopolies is that we automatically assume it's progress. Just because it can be done, it should be done. Um, but what if you value the rights of the worker? What if these jobs that Amazon is these jobs that Amazon creates are dangerous? Amazon warehouses have double the serious injury rate of any other warehouses in the industry. Um, I don't think that's good. 
That's not that's not good for workers. I think workers should be able to be safe. And Amazon's jobs have a tremendous amount of churn. They replace their entire workforce 1.5 times a year. So even if yeah, even if you get the Amazon job, it's only going to last a couple months. That's not a career. And uh, I just think a world of progress is not controlled by a few gigantic companies who mistreat their workers. I think a world of progress is where workers can have a good career, have a voice, have control uh, and autonomy over their working conditions. It, like that's real progress and big tech doesn't represent that. So, and that's all that stuff with the workers, that's the reason why the service exists. And so that service is popular because Amazon is mistreating its workers. And so um, I just don't think it's worth it. Um, Real progress is a world where um, the American dream is possible. Like someone with a good idea can start a small business and compete and thrive and create good jobs and pay their workers. And real progress is a world where workers have autonomy in their workplace, um, can organize if they want to or if they need to, um, can advance in their careers. And I just don't think the, the future envisioned by these big tech monopolies represents that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a couple of things there. Um, well, the first is that there's this, this idea of uh, disruption that you find in tech companies, which just drives me mad. Um, and I, it's, it was that slogan, wasn't it? I think it was I think it was Mark Zuckerberg that kind of move fast and break things. Kind of, it's you know, it just strikes me as such an adolescent approach to the world, and doesn't take into account any of these things that you've just talked about. Anything to do with well-being, anything to do with community, anything to do with treating people with respect. And then on, in addition to that, um, the other thing connected to the warehouses and things like that is we really get a sense that one of the ways they're able to operate like this is because so much of it is hidden. So, I mean, reading How to Resist Amazon and why, you know, I, I, I had a vague sense that Amazon was a, you know, a bit of a nasty company and didn't treat its work as well. But seeing the detail that you go into and seeing the sort of the specifics, whether that be about like the the vending machines for painkillers to stop people, you know, going off sick or taking a break, like it's it's this kind of inhuman mistreatment, but it's hidden from people that if we saw that in, you know, the, the shop across the street, we'd do something about it. We wouldn't patronize. But because it's it's hidden in you know warehouses on the edges of towns we're kind of blind to it and we kind of accept right and like but it's if the i'm glad you mentioned the warehouses on edge of on the edges of towns because if amazon keeps going there's no town left and that's another thing is they're 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 pulling economic activity from downtowns to the outskirts Mm -hmm. where everything is hidden and it's like these workers are being mistreated these workers, they're working themselves to the exhaustion. It's its just impossible to spend, um, you know, 10 hours in the weeds, go home, um, raise children, eat healthy, exercise, do all the, the obligations of a human person, and then go back and work 10 more hours in the weeds. It's just not sustainable. And so it's like it's even hiding the people. There's, there's this just really interesting um, – Emily Gandelsberg wrote a book called On the Clock – um, which I cite a lot because she she worked for Amazon for a couple months and wrote about it. It was a really valuable resource. But she's she talks about she can't manage to eat anything except like a fast food drive through on the way home. Yeah. And so it's like, again, that's also hidden too. the the mistreatment and the 
the really the violence of the warehouse work is hidden, but so is that person from their community because the work is so hard. They just grab a paper bag full of food on the way home and yeah. go home and crash with Netflix on and then return the next day. There's, they're not engaging with their community at all. I really think if you value community or being a member of a community, like small businesses is a part of that. That's what that's they, they can, especially a bookstore. Uh, can form the backbone of a community, can give a community its definition. Um, I, just, I mean, Shakespeare and Company is a perfect example of that. Think of all the people who have gathered here. Think of the, the dreams that have happened in this building and, and just the art that has come from people who spent time here. If this place wasn't here, think about what wouldn't have been written. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it, it's. A, we're definitely. I want to come on to, to that that side. The sort of, I guess, the positive aspect of it. But just staying with the the kind of the mistreatment. Um, one thing that I felt when reading this was like, so I was glad that you had done this research, so we didn't have to wade through all these kind of horrific discoveries. And there's too many to go into now. But could you just give us an idea of like what what were some of the details that shocked you most? when you were researching Amazon? Because I'm guessing you went into it already with a pretty low view of this company. And were there were there moments where you're like, oh God, I knew they were bad, but I didn't realize it was this bad? Well, I mean, the it's the in the in between the first and second edition of the book, um, a, a tornado hit Edwardsville, Illinois, um, and and leveled an Amazon warehouse, and and six people died, um, who were Amazon workers, and those are the only deaths for the entire tornado. And it just like looking at at that and how Amazon handled it was pretty shocking. Um, one of the drivers texted his partner and said, Amazon won't let us go home. Mm -hmm. And like, that's the last she ever heard from him. And so it's, it's unclear, um, what kind of training the people had and how, how prepared that building was. And of course, Amazon is being hush hush about it. And I mean, emergency regulations in the United States aren't great to begin with. So I don't want to blame the training, um, particularly, but it, it is unclear, um, how prepared that building and these folks were for, for weather like that. And then um, like the next day when the police held a press conference, no Amazon executives showed up. Um, one of them tweeted, um, you know, just the typical thoughts and prayers thing. Um, but uh, just not a ton of support from Amazon who tried to really quickly um, bury it. And then of course, OSHA, which is the United States um, Worker Safety Agency, um, did an investigation and ended up fining Amazon for safety violations. But of course, the fine was like $60,000, which is just nothing for for Amazon and of course won't bring those workers back. Um, so, I mean, this is this is at times a question of life and death. This isn't and those aren't the only deaths in Amazon warehouses from that year either. Um, so it's really serious. It's, it's not just, I mean, the union busting and the worker injuries, that's really important and really scary, but sometimes it does come down to, to life and death, yeah. which yeah. is why I think it's so, so scary and dangerous for Amazon to try to keep this stuff hidden. And of course, why I'm writing books about it yeah. and yeah. on podcasts talking about it. One thing you, um, you talk about in the book is the, um, you know, the, the fact that, working for Amazon is demanding and low-paying work. And then you also, I think, quite sort of transparently say, you know, working in a bookstore generally is demanding and low-paying and physically, you know, physically taxing work. And you said something which really, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say it necessarily surprised me, but it made me sort of have a slightly wider reflection, which you said, like, everyone who works at The Raven, including me, has another way to support themselves. 
Everyone who works at the Raven is part-time and I do not offer benefits like healthcare. And it made me think, well, I suppose I have two questions. The first is, is that something which is a situation for independent bookstores because of the pressures from companies like Amazon and previously from the, the bookstore wars? Or does it sort of underline maybe a sort of a more fundamental problem with the way the publishing and the book selling and the book buying industry work that even if let's say it was a level playing field and all other things were equal it would still be hard for a business like yours to operate and to pay and to treat its staff in the way that you would want to pay and treat them well, that's a really good question and um well, first, a, a, a quick and, and happy update, actually, is that the Raven now has four full-time employees, and we do have a health benefits plan. So thanks it, thanks to the, the last couple years, um, we've been able to um, meet some of those goals. Um, but I think it's both. I think it's, it is a reflection of the level playing field. I think the market share for independent bookstores in the United States is artificially low. And if you had to blame one thing, it's, of course, Amazon. It's, it's the marketplace that one company controls more than half of the market. It's, the, it's not a lot of pie to split up among everyone else. Um, that being said, it's, you know, I was, I'm researching for my next book. I was talking to um, novelist Louise Erdrich who's amazing and yeah. she owns a bookstore in Minneapolis and I asked her like what would happen if Amazon went away um, and and she said it would be slow if the recovery happened at all um, just because some of this damage is pretty serious to the book market and it, it doesn't happen overnight um, and I, I do think there's this persistent notion that's frequently exploited that you work in books because of the love of it um, which it's okay to love your job and it's okay yeah. to work at a bookstore because you love books. That's why I work at a bookstore. That's a good thing. If you get fulfillment and if you enjoy working around books, that's great. But as soon as that turns into a way to exploit you and make you work for less than you're worth, um, that's trouble. Yeah. Um, so, but that, that culture is very persistent in the American publishing industry. And I, I have a feeling, I've, I've seen people who work in London talking about salaries, and I think it's pretty widespread across the board, is that it's like, well, you have a low salary, but at least you get to work in books. Oh. I, it's, these, it's, these people are way too smart um, and, and way too wonderful to have to deal with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it also, it limits the people who can't it work does. in books, it right? Does. Particularly if you have to pay for rent in London. And right, and so all of a sudden, you've Got, like the only people who can open bookstores are people with an inheritance or um, you have people who need to find a side hustle who could be full timers, but they're a teacher who can only work at a bookstore every yeah. Thursday. Um, and then again, I think it's you've got the, the world's biggest company um, convincing people that a hardcover is worth nine dollars. That's not a path to fixing that that problem. Um, so. Yeah, it's hard to say what the solution is. I, of course, have some ideas for policy. I think of like a, a, a fixed price book law um, is really handy. And I think you can look in, in France and Paris to see evidence of how that yeah, works. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's take a little diversion onto that, yeah. because that was one thing I was going to bring up was um, obviously your book is very focused on how Amazon operates in the U.S., and, um, you know, it's a global company now. It has its, you know, Amazon UK, Amazon France, Amazon so many other countries. And different countries have responded to it in different ways. So, as you say, in France, we have a fixed price book law, which you know, predates Amazon, actually. 
Um, and in fact, the UK used to have the, uh, the fixed price law, which was then, um, which was then abolished. Um, and one thing uh, we also see, we've also seen in France is sort of proactive steps from the government to limit Amazon's influence. So, for example, you know, the fixed price law, you can't discount a book by more than 5% of the cover price. Uh, in addition, Amazon are no longer able to uh, offer free postage for books. So, you know, they, have, it, they offer it for, for one cent sometimes. You know, it's a kind of, it's a nominal amount, but it, sort of, it means that the, the book that you can get from your local bookstore will be the same price as it is on uh, Amazon. There's also, you know, local subsidies for bookstores. The Paris uh, City Hall um, charges lower business rates for, for someone opening a bookstore than someone opening another type of cafe. And I'm intrigued to somebody who, you said you were in Paris 10 years ago, but like coming back to Paris and you only arrived yesterday, so this is a bit of pressure on you. But do you notice sort of a fundamental difference in the, let's say the bookstore landscape here when you walk around compared to a, a U.S. city? Well, I, it's, I'll, I would be able to answer that. My, my goal this afternoon is to visit more <laughs> bookstores, so I'd be able to answer that better this evening. Um, but the, I think one of the most stunning things I learned in researching how to resist Amazon and why is that France has 20% of the population in the United States, and it has more bookstores than mm -hmm. the United States. And that alone is evidence that all this stuff works. Yeah. The fixed price law, the shipping law, um, labor unions, um, and, and a government that's like, look, bookstores are a cultural asset. We need to take steps to protect them. I think that's what it takes to fix is these policy solutions. And I, I think um, I'm kind of here to confirm it and research it. But looking at it from the outside and having been here once before, um, it certainly seems like some of this stuff is working mm -hmm. and, and is a solution to some of these problems. And Amazon hasn't been able to get a foothold in France uh -huh. because of all these things. Yeah, yeah. And it's like with, with the, just how many labor unions are here and how active and just the way f like working labor in France works, they wouldn't be able to get away with some yeah, of this warehouse yeah. stuff that they do in the United States. Yeah, like, I mean, I think, I think you know, to be, to be open, I think they do, you know, they, they operate here. I'm sure they operate to a profit and I'm, quite sure they sort of push the labor limits to their you know <laughs> to the right. to breaking point but yeah no you're absolutely you right. go you go down a street it, it at times in the united states you can't go down any street without seeing an amazon van right. they're just everywhere and every porch has an amazon package on it and like every drugstore has an amazon pickup point out front um, so it, it really is widespread. And in talking to European booksellers um, at the conference in Prague and, and here, I'm like, look at the United States. <laughs> is like your future 10 years from now if you let Amazon do what they want. Yeah. It's like we're, I think we're a cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. and, and I do think some folks are doing some interesting things policy-wise to try to prevent it. And I'm glad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm interested as well to kind of compare, I don't know how familiar you are with what's going on in the UK, but I think there's maybe some parallels with the US. And so, so in France, there's, as I say, there's been the fixed price law for a while, and it's essentially preserved its independent bookstores. So in just in this arrondissement, arrondissement which is, you know, just a, a few square miles, we have several hundred independent bookstores which which has been sort of you know quite a few have closed down it's you know it's not it's not a utopia but like you know there's still many are quite viable businesses in the uk i know what happened was the initial amazon effect was that it decimated the independent bookstore scene but one thing you've seen in cities like edinburgh like london over the last few years is new uh, sort of exciting 
well-run, interesting independent bookstores sort of popping up, sort of fulfilling a demand for something that, that Amazon can't um, fulfill, to use a, a very Amazon word. Um, is that something that has happened in the States? Like have, you know, again, not really being devil's advocate, but is there, has the presence of Amazon made those bookstores that have survived better? you think? I do. Um, and it's it's really interesting. And of course, given the choice um, to go back in time and prevent Amazon from starting, I would. I'm not <laughs> saying Amazon is a net good. Um, but just the conditions being that they are and the cleverness required to thrive in the Amazon world means that the bookstores that are opening are being run by really clever and interesting people. And it's in my next book, I talked to 10 of them. Um, 10 American bookstores are in the book that are all doing amazing work. One surprising thing I found out is that since two th- since 2020, since the pandemic started, um, 100 minority or black-owned bookstores have opened in the United States. And wow. so that's that's that alone is really amazing because, of course, um, people of color, people from historically marginalized backgrounds – have less access to the kind of capital that you need to start a bookstore. They can't get bank loans. They have less intergenerational wealth. So the, the fact that 100 people, 100 of them have figured out how to do it is amazing. And of course, publishing in bookstores is, is vastly, overwhelmingly white. And so I celebrate this, this new wave of, of bookstores owned by, by black people and, and people of color. Three of the bookstores in the book are black owned, um, two of which are fairly new since 2017. Um, and then I think other business models keep popping up. One of the bookstores I talked to for the book is a worker owned co-op called Red Emma's in Baltimore. And they're, um, not only are they committed to running as a worker owned co-op, but they're doing it in a way above ground and systems based that they want to export it. They want to have a kind of a packet ready to go. It's like, so you want to start an employee owned co-op. Here's what we've learned. Here's how we do it. And they've already, they've already converted a pizza place down the street from them into an employee owned co-op too. So there are a ton of great ideas in a way you have to be super clever to function, which sure it does mean bookstores are doing really interesting work. Um, Just as a quick caveat to that one thing about the UK, which um, is, uh, I think I think is important to notice. So obviously, I, I mentioned Edinburgh, I mentioned London. These are big cities with yeah. kind of critical masses of readers, and so they can support a kind of a thriving independent bookstore scene. I think sort of in the town that I grew up, Bournemouth in the south of the UK, like you know, it's generally quite a wealthy town. But like, there were three or four independent bookstores I could think of when I was growing up. Now I can think of one. And that's kind of you know slightly outside of the town, and so I wonder if sort of this this revival does risk being a little bit sort of metropolitan rather than yeah. um, you know sort of a bit further. It's tricky, and it's in the way the Raven operates, the way a lot of my friends operate, and I'm sure Shakespeare and Company too. You're kind of reliant on foot traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, but that's like a policy thing is like the just urban design and what's happening with with gentrification in, in, in towns is like, I, especially in the States, it's like you're building these towns around cars. People aren't walking around. And that's like you're creating an environment where at least our model of bookstore can't thrive. I'll also add, I think that's why um, this post pandemic work of creating a bigger than four walls bookstore of creating a bookstore that can reach people who aren't in the store is really important. Um, So folks, because of bad urban design and bad urban planning, folks who don't have access to a bookstore 
um, can at least interact with it, can shop, can talk to the booksellers, create ways for those folks to connect, even if um, through no fault of their own, through bad policy, they're not in a place that can support a bookstore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about that then to conclude the conversation on two sort of two positive notes, I think. The first one is sort of what are some of the ways that you have seen in researching your new book that uh, independent bookstores are innovating, are doing interesting things to sort of survive and hopefully thrive in in the, you know, before we take down Amazon? Well, it's, a, it's a really good question. The, and the one thing um, that's going on in the States is a really kind of perverse culture war against queer books. Um, and it's it's turning violent at times. And, and one of the fronts of this culture war is through a program called Drag Story Hour, where drag queens or kings will come and just have this like joyful hour with kids and sing songs and read books. It's really inclusive. It promotes literacy. It's a really wonderful program. And, and far-right protesters are at times literally attacking these events. Um, but there are bookstores who are just defiant in creating this safe space for kids. Um, and they're partnering up with these groups called Rainbow Coalitions. And the job of the Rainbow Coalition is to physically block the door from these protesters. Yeah. They let the kids in and they form a human barrier, often holding rainbow colored umbrellas, preventing the bad actors and the violent people from entering the store. And like, if that's not book selling in 2023 in America, I don't know what is. But it's like literally like creating a safe space used to be an abstract um, kind of if you think about. Um, what you put on the shelf, how you talk to people, who you hire. These are kind of non-physical, at least um, abstract goals or, or methods. But it, at times, there are bookstores who have to physically defend mm -hmm. their safe space. Yeah. And, and it's just amazingly courageous work um, and, and, and super important because these people are really trying to take joy away from kids and reading. Yeah. And it's to, to nurture young readers is one of the most important jobs of a bookstore. And they're not giving up. In, in the way that um, this often happens, that sort of um, element of the culture war, of the kind of the drag time story hour has been sort of imported to the UK yeah. as well. And one thing that just fascinates me about the opposition to it is people seem to forget, I mean, I don't know how widely this tradition is known, but of the UK tradition of the Christmas pantomime, where the, the, the principal figure of every single pantomime you go to is, you know, the widow twanky. It's the man dressed up as a woman. It's a, it's a drag act on stage, which has been, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been fundamental to Christmas huh, kids' entertainment for years. And yet the, you know, because of the way this kind of this confected outrage yeah. is, um, is using to, to, you know, to fight perhaps oh, other battles, it's, it's astonishing. To it? the far right, internal logic is not important. <laughs> so yeah. Calling out hypocrisy doesn't matter. Um, so what other innovative ways um, are, are bookstores creating community? Um, that, well, I talked about Red Emma's and the employee-owned co-op. Um, they're really amazing, too, because they... Um, you think of the radical bookstore and you think, oh, this is an anarchist bookstore or this is a socialist bookstore, but they really stubbornly refuse to identify as any leftist tradition. They see themselves rather as a gathering place for all people who are interested in social justice and creating coalitions and bringing people together, which strikes me as, as really inspiring work. And a lot of tangible social good has come out of of activities um, in organizing that that happened at Red Emma's and like that's not even selling books they sell books they, they and that's part of their mission um, and they sell coffee too and snacks but um, you know that's not profitable 
but it's it's community work. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really important. And you you ask them, it's like we're not bad booksellers because we're anti-capitalists. Yeah, yeah. Um, but book selling is just part of our work. And another part of our work is this organizing and, and building coalitions for people who want to fight for a better world. Yeah. Um, I talked to a bookstore owner outside of Chicago who's suing Amazon. That's really interesting. She there's a, one of her customers is an antitrust lawyer and was looking for a, a face, a, a, a plaintiff to be on their their um, anti-competitive Amazon lawsuit. And she didn't even hesitate to say yes. She's got this amazing fight in her um, and, and doing this in the midst of being forced to relocate because um, her landlord doubled her rent without notice. And so like that's again, that's also book selling in 2023. It's like finding the energy to sue Amazon while you're dealing with this very real kind of emergency economic situation at home. So it's the, it's filled with a lot of stories like that. But fortunately, there are a lot of them. And I, the book could have been twice as long. Um, because there are just so many people who are finding ways to do amazing community work via yeah, their yeah, bookstores. Yeah. And so that's um, that's what, what I think I want to conclude on. The bookstores are part of the resistance, but of course, that's only one element of it because the, the book buyers are part of the resistance. And, and you conclude your book, How to Resist Amazon and Why, with essentially a, a list of how to resist uh, Amazon. And in a sense, it's, it's, it's both kind of encouraging and dispiriting <laughs> because... One thing that, that becomes clear while reading this chapter is sort of how this kind of many tentacled beast uh, has kind of has infiltrated so many parts of our society. So you 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 say to one thing we can do is avoid Amazon affiliated brands, and then you, you list them. So you've got A Books, you've got Audible, you've got Goodreads, you've got IMDb, which I didn't realize. You've got Ring, which is of course this whole mad surveillance system, which I learned about from from your book. You've got Twitch, you've got the Washington Post, you've got Whole Whole Foods. Uh, and you mentioned Zappos, which is something I think is perhaps a U.S. thing. I don't even know That's, what that yeah, is. Yeah, it's for shoes. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Um, and yet you also provide alternatives. And that's one thing which um, I think is very useful for the reader here is that it's it's not just a case of sort of being down on Amazon and saying stay away from them. You also offer this information about where people can go for more or less a comparable service, but it's not destructing, destroying communities. Yeah, well, and it is possible to find alternatives. It is possible to have uh, a wonderful, fulfilling life free of Amazon. I have done it for years. Um, but I, I do, um, I don't want people to think that this fight, the solution to this fight is solely their personal economic decisions. Uh-huh. If you want, if you read my book or if you listen to this podcast and decide that you no longer want to do business with Amazon, that's great. I applaud that. I've made a similar decision, but that's not the only solution. You said Amazon is a many tentacled beast. Uh, the answer to Amazon is also a many tentacled beast. So personal economic decisions, sure. Those aren't going to hurt Amazon that much because Amazon is so big, but they will help the alternatives, the smaller alternatives. If you decide to buy a book uh, from The Raven or from Shakespeare and Company, they'll feel it economically more than Amazon will. But still, you're you're helping those those folks stick around, which is really important. But it also needs to be policy. It also needs to be legal. Um, the the it's you know Amazon is trying to reshape the world to to a world where the, they're the only retailer. And so really the answer to that is is also to reshape the world into a place where non-Amazon things can thrive, where communities are possible, where main streets are lined with small businesses, where someone with a good idea can start a business and pay their employees well, where a worker has a voice in their workplace, 
where you can ring someone's doorbell without being recorded on video <laughs> and sent to the police department. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a big answer, but um, I, I do think it's possible, and I've actually seen some encouraging movement mm-hmm. over the last couple of years since I started this project. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. And you give a, you a very kind of comprehensive list of things people can people can do, and I just want to finish on the, on the final one of those because I think it's a point that does need to be reiterated. Is you say, dream of a level playing field, and this is one thing that I can't be stressed enough is that that is not what we're operating. In fact, it's like you're not even asking for pre- preferential treatment necessarily for small businesses. It's just for small businesses like your own, like ours, like all over the world, to be given the same deal, which is sort of Amazon have to pay their taxes, for example. And that's it. The one thing, you know, one of the many things, but one of the, I think, the principal things you can get from an independent bookstore that you don't get from Amazon is from Amazon is, you know, that famous thing of, if you like this, you might like this. One thing that struck me when I first started working here and completely blows my mind is that the power of the bookseller, their speciality, their range, their idiosyncrasies. And it's not the kind of, if you like this, you might like this, but they hand a book to you and it's like, you've, you've never read anything like this. It's going to blow your mind. And Amazon is incapable of that. Yeah, that's something really only a human can do. Yeah. Um, there's no computer has caught up to the mind of a good bookseller. Uh-huh. Which I think is the perfect point on, on which to leave it. How to Resist Amazon and Why is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company, from our Bricks and Mortar store, from our online store. It is, of course, also available from the Raven Bookstore, from the Bricks and Mortar store, from their online store. And the Raven website address is? Ravenbookstore.com. Ravenbookstore.com. So, so check it out. And if you're in Kansas... Pay, uh, pay Danny a visit when he, uh, when he finally returns home. Um, he's not in Kansas anymore um, <laughs> at the moment, rather. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, Danny, all that remains for me to say is thank you so much for visiting us and for joining us on yeah. the podcast today. What a thrill to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favorite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.